0: Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross border trade initiative and infrastructure build On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in.
1: So Parag, welcome back to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. Great to second, be with you again. Uh, time here. We're really excited to, to have you. You know, I think the last time we spoke, your book hadn't been released, mm-hmm. uh, but it was apparently mostly written. And um, is it out now in Chinese or coming out or what's the story? It's today? out. It's Now it's out. So you're here in Beijing promoting right. your Chinese version of your book. Well, Indeed. congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Well, the book is called The Future is Asian. It's an excellent book. I've already read it twice. I picked two of the quotes uh, that were on your Amazon website, the ones I like. Um, one of the reviews said, think crazy rich Asians with infographics, with in-depth research. Khanna outlines the 21st century pivoted towards Asia, an erudite account of stunning economic ascendancy. And then uh, from The Economist, an upbeat examination of a changing greater Asia. Eurasia's future is likely to be more ductile than fixed and hegemonic. In this new world order, actions will still lead to reactions. Uh, Both interesting reviews. And they do cover, I think, the feel of the book to some extent, if you ask me. So, Parag, besides seeing you all over the worldwide internet and television and, and making those points in your
2: book, what has been the reception of it so far? Well, I have to say, I've been very positively surprised by the reception because I was preparing myself for the kind of negative reactions that one sees these days commonly associated as a response to books that are mostly about China. And if the book had been perceived as yet another book, another work of Chinese triumphalism, then it would have gotten a negative response but now that we're four or five months into the process of the rollout of the book and the responses i can truthfully say that there hasn't been a single negative review in any important publication in the entire western world they've all been either very positive or balanced let's say the worst review that i've gotten i would say is a balanced review in the sense that there's points of disagreement or points I would, I would characterize them as misunderstandings or oversimplifications in my own defense but not a single negative review. And that, that obviously is a big, big surprise. And so I think the positive response owes to a couple of things. First of all, it means that people actually read the book rather than jumping to the conclusion that it's a pro-China book. So in other words, they will have noticed that rather than many of the books about Asia that are 99% about China, this one is more like 47% about China and 53% about the rest of Asia Asia, and then a whole lot more, actually, about this collective Asianization process and how it influences not only Asia. In other words, what are the dynamics between China and Asia in both directions that people fail to take into account? And then, what is the collective Asian impact on the world? So you've got chapters on Africa and Europe and North America and South America and so on. So it is much more than just China. And I think that I'm, you know, obviously very, very grateful that people noticed at least that much. And then because it isn't so China-centric that allows a lot of Western audiences to relax a little bit, right? And to learn a bit about how Asian dynamics play out geopolitically, how they have over thousands of years and how I predict them going, which, as the reviews pointed out, is about actions and reactions. So by having a non-linear approach that isn't conclusive, that isn't overly dramatized. um, You can't disagree with it because I'm presenting scenarios, I'm not presenting predetermination, right? I'm saying that actually much of Asia's history is multipolar. You have this to and fro and back and forth between China and its neighbors, and the better we understand that process, the better we can craft scenarios for the future. So there isn't necessarily that much to disagree with. Um, you know, so by and large, whether it's the US, Canada, the UK, European countries, um, the the Arab world, uh, you know, all the places where I've been presenting the book so far, Australia, Singapore... Um, with a, a whole bunch of countries to come. Uh, the o- o- overall, I like can generalize, or every country has their own interests. You know, Canadians are reading the book and they're saying, okay, tell us what we do about Huawei right now, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, Americans are reading it and saying, okay, what do we do at the trade war? Europeans are reading it and saying, should we join Belt and Road? Australians are reading it and saying, you know, what is our identity? So I have had all of those conversations as well. But generally, you know, a heavily research-oriented book is one that's going to have a lot of data and information and frameworks that just most people aren't used to. So I I find, you know, from an academic standpoint that it's gotten the response I wanted, which is people say, I have learned how to think about Asia. Some of the data could become superfluous by tomorrow afternoon, but there's a framework there that wasn't there before. So, Prague, the... The English version of the book, obviously, was seems to me,
1: to be, targeting a non-Asian, readership, educating them on that. Um, what do you think you're going to teach the Chinese, people,
2: who read your, the Chinese version? So actually, you know, the English version of the book is also meant very much for Asians in the sense that. I also wanted Asians to learn about Asians, and they will do so in the various languages that the book is translated in, but English is the global common denominator. And one of my main intellectual reasons for writing the book is that Asians really don't know that much about their own neighbors, because much like Western countries, you learn your national history first and foremost. And obviously, if you're growing up in Germany or Italy or France, you also learn European history. And if you grow up in the United States, you also learn a bit of European history, but none of them really learn Asian history. And if you grow up in India, you learn mostly Indian history and you learn your colonial history so an Indian tip today doesn't really know much about China or Japan a Japanese person doesn't know much about India or Indonesia an Indonesian person doesn't know much about Russia or Iran so I actually did write this book as much uh, for Asians as for Westerners so they could have a kind of one-stop shop to get a sense of where their own neighbors are coming from, because actually, and this is kind of the one of the historical points of departure, is that you had 500 years of colonialism in the Cold War. So in other words, you had fragmentation of Asia. So everyone is familiar with the term Silk Roads, but obviously no human being alive today can remember what it was like when Indians and Chinese and Indonesians and Persians traded more with each other than with their colonial masters or with the United States. So no human being today has a living memory of what that was like, and I wanted to recreate it in a kind of layman's way so that Asians could understand where they were prior to colonialism, the Cold War, and also to document very, very clearly how far they've come in the last 30 years of economic integration in the region and infrastructural integration and diplomatic uh, convergence. I wanted to document all those things because very often what happens is that psychology lags behind reality, right? And one of the most fundamental economic points I make is that Asians today trade a lot more with each other than with the rest of the world. And yet they don't necessarily know that much about each other, and yet they've still managed to recreate a lot of that old kind of Silk Road infrastructure. So I wanted to catch psychology up with reality for Asians. Well, now hearing you say that it makes a lot of sense, because when I opened the book,
1: the first chapter presented a retake on history as if it was looked through an Asian lens. and. It really, uh, for me personally, was powerful, and I thought it was
2: actually quite courageous for you to start a book like this. Well, I think, you know, I did have that introductory chapter that gets the thesis out of the way, you know, and, and starts in the present, so to speak. It, in fact, page one begins with Belton Road, you know, right. in the 2017 summit. So chapter two, though, as you point out, is this long historical... Uh, you know, reconstruction of the last 4,000 years of Asian history, and in fact world history, but from an Asian point of view. So a couple of things about that. First of all, I don't recommend that to anyone. <laughs> that was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Harder than right, any... Yeah, harder than any physical, athletic commitment in my whole life, I've never had as much, you know, wrestling with something as writing that one chapter of this one book. Uh, honest to God, cross my heart. It was a damn near impossible exercise. So it was just grueling. It was eight ultra marathons back to back. It took a year almost of my life with help, you know, to do that one chapter mm-hmm. and it obviously had to be cut down substantially. So what you get in the book is you have know, 40 pages, but 4,000 years and 40 pages. Uh, it's amazing. Um, but so I c- kind of created a, a, methodology in a way for doing it. You know, I had to, first of all, take things from the point of view of a kind of a composite Asian which doesn't exist, right? Right. What is is a, a hybrid Asian, right? But the point being that I had to tell what amounts to a satisfactory degree of truth Stephen Colbert would call it truthiness, <laughs> you know, what, what version of history will Chinese, Indians, Arabs, Russians, Indonesians, you know, all agree to. And so obviously I had to resolve micro disputes uh, along the way and, and every single page and obviously linguistic issues and so on. And then I had to think about the chronology, you know, and um, you know, how to give fair and balanced treatment across geography through the chronology. So, I mean, what, what I don't explain in the book so that you can basically just get on and read the story is that I have to think about how much space I give to each thousand-year period, 500-year period, 100-year period, 50-year period, uh, as I move from the past into the present, giving more space to contemporary times, and then how much space do I give physically to West Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, and East Asia, and so what you, if you were to kind of micro, if you were to do forensics on the chapter, you'd see that obviously the If you were to do forensics on the chapter, you'd see that the present obviously gets more lines than the past. And you'd see though that I'm very balanced between China and the Arab world and and South Asia and the rest of Asia.
1: Well, you know, that's why I said it was a brave thing to do because you could have, you said the reviews were positive on the book, but you could have made uh, many billion enemies. I could have uh, made a lot of enemies. Shockingly,
2: that's one where I think that. Just getting it wrong. the, The happiest review I got, I think, was Kirkus. Uh, reviews, the industry publication, where they said it's a dazzling distillation of history, and those two words—I mean, it means more to me than <laughs> any of the blurbs, than any of the reviews—is—is is that those two words from Kirkus Because, and the other thing is also obviously, I've had now a lot of historians write to me, and then they like the book, and um, and obviously any historian of any stature is more a historian than I am, right. so the most I got in terms of critique was a typo. I mean, so that's how much work went into that chapter to make sure that I was anticipating the the feedback. (laughs) As an author myself,
1: it was a brave thing to do and you pulled it off. I I thoroughly enjoyed that chapter and the rest of the book. You know, uh, but I'm also an American and, you know, uh, so reading the book, uh, it was almost, to me, a lot of it was like preaching to the choir because I spent most of my adult life in Asia, working, uh, studying, living here. But, you know, right now, when I look back at my own country, uh, they, they're demonizing China. And it's kind of this very American thing to do where you you know, one guy wears the, the white outfit and the, the white hat and the, the other guy's that bad guy with the black clothes on and the black hat and the spaghetti Western type uh, thing or the, I've been reading a lot of uh, actual Russian history and uh, Cold War history to kind of put it in perspective. And, you know, all I can get out of it is that the Chinese are just trying to operate the best and out compete the U.S. in a system that the U.S. pretty much built, you know, WTO, the rule of law, the, the tech scenario that we have today. But the, the Russians actually perhaps wanted to actually destroy us. So, I mean, it was, it's a little different. Yeah. You spent some time in Washington, DC, you know a lot Plenty. more about the city yeah. than I do. So can you,
2: you spend some light on how that happens so quickly? Well, I think, look, the most important thing is to not have to spend our time correcting or overcompensating for a false framing, right? The more important thing is that we understand the world for what it is and how it is, and how it works, and not believe that just because someone has uttered the phrase new Cold War, therefore it is a new Cold War, and now we have to examine to what extent it is or isn't a new Cold War. It's more important to say we live in a multipolar world, there are hierarchies in the system, China is a superpower, the United States is a superpower in many ways, the European Union is a collective superpower, Russia is a great power, India is a great power, you have global multipolarity, but you also have multipolarity in Asia, where China is the most powerful state, but you also have Japan, again, India, Russia, and other countries like Australia and South Korea as great powers. That's the global landscape. So let's begin with that. and. It's more important to get that right and that complexity right and the feedback loops among all those actors right than to simply say, well, the most important dynamic in the world today is the US and China. It's a new Cold War. It's a new bipolarity. Who will win? I'm not interested in that because it's wrong. So I don't see why we would use that as a point of departure. Right. So in a, in and of itself, but you don't have an election cycle to go through. And you no, don't I know. have to get elected, right? and, but neither do you. Yeah. So this, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> but what you and I need to do is to educate people. Exactly. And, and again, this is what I found is that by establishing the correct baseline of what the geopolitical structure of the world is, and how Russians and Chinese and others view it, that is what our fellow Americans need the most, right? Is to first get the baseline or get the story right. So for example, when it comes to Belt and Road, it is inappropriate for someone to have woken up yesterday and say, aha, this is a Chinese hegemonic plot. They need to understand that the reason the Belt and Road exists is because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fact that with globalization and internationalization of supply chains, China very quickly became the largest importer of commodities and the largest exporter of finished goods in the world, and it's subject to the Malacca trap, the Straits of Malacca, and sought to diversify its trade corridors and and import corridors, and over the last 30 years has been doing infrastructure projects in order to create those efficiencies, and Belt and Road is the most recent incarnation Of that process Therefore it is Much more defensive In its origins Than offensive In its origins If people Don't understand that Then how do you Expect them Them to be Competent and, and uh, you know rational in talking about Belton Road, they're not going to be. So I have to explain that as well. So whether you are again, you know, I try to always write in a way where whether I whether it's an American reading it or a Brit reading it or a Russian or a Chinese, you know, I'm, call, I'm I'm getting the facts of how we got to be got got to where we are correct first and foremost. Um, and therefore, indeed, you know, you really can't look whether it's technological or otherwise, because you know, I've been looking at since way before anyone started talking about new Cold War. I've been looking at how China provides, um, you know, diplomatic or financial or military assistance to countries that. The U.S. considers a rogue state, you know, know, whether it is Cuba or Venezuela or Sudan, uh, Iran, Syria and Russia does the same. This is as this is as old a story now as the mid 2000s. This has been going on, James, for 15 years we have had um, this kind of tension. Obviously things have escalated, but it isn't purely bipolar. It's, you could kind of go back to the old adage, power abhors a vacuum or something like that. Or again, simply take that view, around how China needs to access supply chains. And as you know, the, the prequel to this book, Connectography, was all about supply chains as the battlefield. And so you kind of take it away a bit from the notion that it's an ideological competition. Because as you as you know, um, even the people who say it's a new Cold War actually say, well, it is different because it's actually not ideological, right? Because China isn't really exporting its system. And America has kind of stopped trying to export its system for a long time. So we really should be viewed on this global supply chain playing field rather than on, on an ideological one so there's way more differences and similarities and so you will never see a phrase like new cold war in, in in my book
1: so as you know uh parag at the end of april this year they had the belt and road forum again in beijing and it was the second one but from my point of view it's a real it's a real coming out party uh for the belt and road in it's been just over five years at the time of the, the forum, and China was able to announce 130 countries participating, 30 international organizations uh, supporting it, and there there is a framework. Some people say it might not be, it may be very loose. Some people, there's lots of different people have their own criticisms of it, but I believe that the Chinese government did a Really good job, especially Xi Jinping, uh, in his uh, spoken remarks, explaining why they're doing it, what they're going to improve. You know what's going on, and then just as recently as this week, uh, when Xi Jinping was in Russia, he actually was at a forum, another trade forum, and had to was asked and had to explain uh, even further. And he said, "Let me quote." The BRI is not China's version of the Marshall Plan at all. The initial idea of the BRI was very simple, which is to use the historical memories of dynamic exchanges to energize the world economy. This project has become more dynamic, with more countries expressing willingness to join, and he added the proposal is a public good and has
2: earned worldwide admiration. I think there's some very useful language in his statement because one of the critical things to remember is that infrastructure is a global public good, right? It enables this connectivity between countries, it enables participation, trade, and the world economy. And so the the, the BRI and its, again, predecessors and all of the investments in infrastructure finance and trade facilitation and supply chain connectivity and customs harmonization all of that stuff are is a public good and we've tended to think of public goods as just you know military security and protection of sea lanes and the commons and environmental stewardship but now infrastructure is on par with those things and of course the difference is that whereas those other categories of public goods we think of as being largely provided by the United States and the Western Alliance, here you have a public good of infrastructure where Asians, first Japan, actually, and now China, are really the leading drivers of it. And so, you know, I think, again, that language is economically correct in terms of, you know, public uh, goods, you know, sort of terminology. And the other thing is that, again, it's a nonlinear process. It's been perceived as something that is very unilateral, but in fact, um, you know, is becoming something that it's much more multi-directional and multilateralized with all of the institutions that are participating and supporting it. So I think that, you know, uh, one of the sort of punchlines, I guess, that I have on this is that all roads don't lead to Beijing. You know, Beijing builds many roads, but all roads don't lead to Beijing because in the spirit of those dynamic exchanges, to use Xi Jinping's exact phrase, um, those dynamic exchanges were multi-directional. Right, China was one node of the Silk Roads But there was north-south, east-west oh, yeah. Southwest to northeast Northwest to southeast And oceanic and so forth So what's actually happening Is that everyone is connecting to everyone Much of the media may only focus Only on Chinese bilateral Initiatives of infrastructure But I study the whole pie right? All the, I study the whole puzzle And all the pieces of it And how all the pieces are fitting together And China is undoubtedly supremely important in much of it. But what will happen in the next five years is that you will have a lot more of everyone connecting to everyone, not just to China. So you know, your book, it ends with an
1: epilogue, and I'm going to quote a few sentences from that epilogue. Asia dominated the old world while the West led the new world, and now we are coming to a truly global world. We are only in the early phases of global Asianization. Hence, we must continue to explore how the coming decades will transpire. How will Asia manage the current wave of geopolitical, economic, social, and technological transformations? Will mixed capitalism, social conservatism, and technocratic governance remain a magic formula, elevating those societies that have not adopted it yet? How will Western and other powers respond to Asia's rise, and what adjustments Will Asians make to those reactions? So, you know, your book is entitled The Future is Asian, but you end with a question, pretty much. Um, and you you provide an amazing amount of factual research, justification, and, and it's a very compelling book. Um, I'm just curious how you what was your thought process on how you would end
2: this? Where are you going next with this? You know, it's, it suggests an open-endedness, and I wanted to emphasize, you know, from beginning to end actually, that again, most of global history is multipolar, not unipolar and that rather than just talk about how the world has to respond to Asia, I wanted to remind everyone, as I do in the historical section, that we live in a European world, a world of historical sovereignty, a world, a world of political sovereignty, uh, which is a great legacy, obviously, of, uh, of the colonial system and the peace of Westphalia and so forth. And we live in an American world as well, of course, in so many ways that relate to geopolitical structure and our economic systems uh, on a global basis. So Asia, in other words, its rise is a part, it, part of its rise is driven by that system that has been the foundation of its growth and it has to adapt to it. And it obviously is now modifying it in some ways, but not completely. It's not an overhaul. So I wanted to leave open ended how this fusion will take place, really, between East and West, between Asia, Europe, and the United States. And how that process of mutual learning is going to continue and adjustment and how it isn't really, again, to go back to the point about linearity, it's not a linear picture in any way, shape or form. Uh, I don't view anything as uh, foreordained in the same way that China appears to dominate Belt and Road, but in you know historical eras, no one really dominated the Silk Road, right? So we have to kind of look at the dynamic evolution of this system and not write off anyone. You know, Prague, there's so
1: many types of hegemony at play these days, and especially between China and the U.S., whether it's military, technical. You know, you've heard the stories around 5G, AI, uh, trade and supply chain, economic models, where are we going to get our soybeans, just everything, right? Um, And uh, I just read a new book, uh, which just came out a couple weeks ago, called Kissinger on Kissinger. And um, it was an interview with Kissinger by some of his uh, longtime staff members. And uh, he said, Everything depends, therefore, on some conception of the future. And he said, two years after he wrote that, um, that this should be the principle that shapes Americans' foreign policy, President Nixon asked him to serve as his national security advisor. I wonder. You know, obviously, in Singapore, you have the legacy of Lee Kuan Yew, an amazing visionary. Um, Kissinger's a very old man these days. Who, who do you see out there? Are there any of these kind of leaders, like the Churchill, the Lee Kuan Yew, the people that actually made their imprint on history? Are there any of those people
2: bumping around today that you can see? Well, we won't know until they've done their work, until their handiwork is done, and sometimes it takes decades. If you think about the ways in which Nixon is known to have had an intuition about China and about the way in which a multipolar world should be structured in America was going to prevail in the Cold War but wasn't necessarily going to do it alone without certain kinds of realignments, that intuition is something that Kissinger gave him a kind of, you know, sort of theoretical, if you will, underpinning for, and hence, you know, the outreach to China, and the opening to China, um, and so forth. But of course, we didn't necessarily know how that would fully play out. And there were a lot of other intervening variables that came in to play in the 70s and 80s and so forth. So it's only now in retrospect that we can say that it only took one kernel of inspiration or vision, to unlock a path that changed the rest of history, you might say, in in geopolitics. So if you were sitting here today, as we are, and kind of saying, well, what are the the visions that could lead to a different kind of future than, say, a new Cold War, right? Uh, what would those be? And I think, ideally, it's a vision that's premised on the kind of novel a recognition of the novel landscape that we're in today, uh, which is namely that we truly live in a multipolar, multi-civilizational, multi-regional world, and that globalization is a force that is genuinely more powerful than any one empire or any one empire's role in it. So I think it takes a systems view. You know right now, obviously, all of the great powers are led by leaders who are highly nationalist. We're really focused on their regional and it's a sign global of our times right now. Right, it's a sign of our times. Of course, they're doing their jobs technically, but do they have the ability, such as say, an, you know, FDR, you know, to kind of say, we have this unique historical juncture. We have to create, recreate, renew, build from scratch a new kind of international system and diplomatic underpinnings for it. Obviously not. We're not hearing any of that at the moment. We hear it again in rhetoric, right? You could say that Xi Jinping says that, for example. Um, But the whole point is that just because someone is saying something and they may be saying the right thing, it's the order, as it was the case in building the United Nations, was meant to at least appear to not be premised solely on the leadership of one country. Right. hence the Security Council. Did the United States have to create a Security Council and grant permanent member status to other countries? Of course, it didn't have to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even at the time uh, of the founding of the United Nations, there were already tensions brewing with Russia about the post-World War II settlement in Europe, right? We already knew that it was going to be a difficult relationship with Russia, but yeah. still made them permanent members of the Security Council, right? right? So. There isn't that kind of a um, you know, situation that we're in right now. Could it evolve in that direction? Yes. It would require that you had you know, kind of very technocratic, Angela Merkel-style leaders in every country saying, okay, there's good initiatives going on in the security domain, but we need to multilateralize it. There's good initiatives going on in the infrastructure domain, and we need to multilateralize it. Most importantly of all, perhaps there's good ideas in how to tackle climate change, but we need to multilateralize it and have all the key leaders actually singing from that script and implementing that script at the same time. So do I see it as a possible scenario? Yes, but is it happening right now? No, it's not. Yeah, you know, since the post-World War
1: era, you know, the idea of people not wanting to ever go you know, have a large war, a world war again, maybe drove some of that, um, those personal efforts. And then as you lose uh, memory of those things, um, people may, that uh, option becomes more, I think, likely, unfortunately.
2: Do you have a, a feeling on that as a father of two children? <laughs> well, I mean, I've, uh, you know, my thinking is that we tend to be led too much by analogy and not enough by reality, you know? And and analogy gets the better of us very often in terms of thinking about conflict as if it is inevitable because it's happened in certain periodic cycles that relate to rising and declining powers and so forth. Again, the novelty of today's world in terms of this distributed power structure and this totally global multipolarity is a reality, again, not a reality, not a hypothesis, it's a fact, more powerful than any historical analogy. So the notion that rising and declining powers must fight you know, really stems from a European view of the world and European history and European patterns. It wasn't a global system then. Yeah. so it's effectively irrelevant when you're looking at the G- us and china which are geographically so dispersed now there can be conflict between the us and china and it could be a conflict most likely located somewhere in the greater asian region but that doesn't mean that it happened because of some in- inevitable historical dynamic it happened because there's very specific territorial or political tensions between them and their proxy states, and those tensions can be resolved peacefully or violently, but they don't have to escalate in war. I mean, as you know, I spend a fair bit of time in the book talking about how the analogies and lessons of Western history don't really have much relevance in Asia. You don't have automatic escalation patterns, you don't have rigid alliances, um, and you don't have a certain degree of cultural homogeneity where one power can actually pretend that it can dominate the others for a long period of time. It's been tried, but it's failed, right? And Asia's not the kind of environment where you can have a genuine, long-lasting hegemony. Um, so again, it's very, very different from Europe, and we have to appreciate it on its own terms. Um, you know, so I think, again, I'm not painting a rosy scenario. You know, this book and my other books are full of conflict scenarios. I've no doubt that those some of those conflicts will come to fruition, but not because they were historically, you know, predetermined to do so. Well, in the run-up and the,
1: the promotion of the book, you did spend a lot of time in the Western world talking to people who just came from Europe on your way here to Beijing and uh, you know I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here in some of these questions, but uh, you know I've lived the most of my adult life in Asia, but for someone who doesn't have that experience set from America or from Western Europe, what, what, what are the things that you see when you talk to them that just trip them up? The, 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 pre, the preconceived notions, the analogies? that just caused them to fall down and not make it to understanding? Is there anything you could
2: call out? I mean, the most obvious one, and this might be generational, but obviously, you know, older people look at Asia through the prism of this idea of, you know, just rigid national rivalries being the primary mode or lens through which to understand the relationship between Asian countries, rather than, say, the the Silk Road lens, right? And in fact, as the present has proven, the last 30 years have proven, as much as the rivalries persist, and there's very severe geopolitical fault lines. We see it between China and Japan over the Senkakus. We see it over in the South China Sea. We see it on the Indo-Chinese border, right? The Sino-Indian border. There's no question those are there. But why is that the primary lens? Is it because you don't understand the historical modes of interaction between these countries? Um, You know, is it because one doesn't know much about economics? or one isn't knowledgeable enough about how Asian countries actually deal with each other. So I'm out there to, to kind of correct for that ignorance and say, well, if World War Three must happen between these rival nations, please tell me why it hasn't happened yet. Because they've had plenty of skirmishes, they've had plenty of opportunities, right? To fight each other directly and to maybe even claim a decisive victory. So please tell me why it hasn't happened. And that stumps people, right? Because they're much more interested in the negative scenario that hasn't transpired then understand the reality of why it hasn't mm-hmm. right and that takes a bit of extra effort so you know it's my job to make that effort and to say well you know part of the reason is because these rivals are also each other's largest investors and that's obviously not the way the Cold War worked, did it? Right? Yeah. But today is very different. So if you want to understand you know, how Asia really works, you can't say, oh, well, they hate each other. You kind of have to look at how you know, one of Alibaba's largest investors in the SoftBank of Japan, yeah. and how SoftBank and Alibaba are teaming up to go and conquer India and ride yeah. sharing and right. e-commerce. Right? Yeah. You really wouldn't understand Asia unless you knew that. You also can't understand China without understanding modern China without understanding how important the role of investment from Japan has been and from the tiger economies, right, that have been amongst its largest investors and have sponsored its rise and with whom it still has very significant interactions today, trade, investment, technology and so forth. Again, rival states yeah. that apparently aren't so rival risks that they're going to conduct World War III against each other. So, you know, from beginning to end, obviously, I, I'm well aware of every one of the preconceived you know, notions about how the world works, whether it's the Western world or Asia, that basically stem from oversimplified, you know, prisms that I, I have no patience for. You know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's not, again, it's not my job to pretend that those are real and I have to correct them. It's my job to show how the world really works so that people can try and elevate themselves a bit beyond those prisms, you know, and um, that, that's what I've tried to do. So, you know, again, reality is more important than theory. Theory is supposed to drive from, derive from reality and, re- and historical experience. I'm a theorist. That's my training in international relations theory. And um, you know, that's why the middle of the book has this whole chapter that says, you know, show me, demonstrate to me the predictive power. That's what theory is supposed to do. It's supposed to have predictive power. The predictive power of Western derived international relations theory for Asia. And you have to answer that question with empirical analysis. And the answer would be zero. Absolutely zero. And you would really have to give me a very concrete, tangible example to the contrary. And no one has done done so. And even the great Graham Allison of Harvard, who's... um, you would think that we would disagree on these things, but he's blurred the book. His name is on the back of the book. Why? Yeah. Because even though he's, you know, originated this notion of the Thucydides trap mm-hmm. and this sort of you know automatic escalation stemming from power transitions, he's ex- very well aware that all of the historical case studies that he uses are effectively from European history. Right. And he's an extremely erudite and, and wide ranging person who wants People to think in more pluralistic terms about the world. So, you know, even though, you know, he's sort of European in, in orientation and training, and he's obviously written about great power relations, he understands that there is an Asian ness to the Chinese story that doesn't make it automatically fit within that historical European paradigm. And well, that's where he and I converge, well, is in appreciating the need for pluralism. Well, Prague, we thank you for making time with us today. I appreciate
1: you being on the, the podcast again. Um, again, I would ask all of our listeners to have a good, good look at your book. Uh, my personal favorite is Chapter Two, which is the, the retelling of the world history from an Asian point of view. Thank
2: you.
0: of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at Ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.